0: Welcome to this bonus edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, where this week we're hosting a takeover of sorts by the publisher William Collins, who have a new podcast series called Ideas Matter. In each episode of the series, an editor from William Collins speaks to one of their authors about the writing process and the central ideas of their latest book. In this episode, the science writer Philip Ball speaks to his editor Miles Archibald about the new book, How to Grow a Human, Adventures in Who We Are and How We Are Made.
1: Ideas Matter by William Collins. The big ideas of our times, discussed by the brightest thinkers. Man or woman? It's gonna be yes or no?
0: Yeah,
1: it could be yes or no. Is it a man? No. It's 10.07am and the editors at William Collins, publishers of non-fiction for over 200 years, are playing a game of guess who? Does
2: she write? She's not a politician.
3: She has done books.
1: Tom Killingbeck is holding all the cards.
3: With miles, is this a member of your family? No. <laughs> Carlos. Is she in the fashion business? Tan- no. And Arabella. Well, oh, goodness, what on earth can, else can you do?
1: Tasked with getting the celebrity. Uh, is she a campaigner? No, probably
2: has campaigning about something, but definitely not her métier.
1: The festivities continue for another twenty minutes until the business of the day is established. Uh, there is, after all, a podcast to introduce. You might refer to her as the Duchess of Dance.
2: Darcy
3: Bustle? So it's my turn this week and I've interviewed the legendary Philip Ball.
2: My name is Philip Ball and I'm a science writer and the question I'm discussing today is can we grow a human being and if we can then should we? Is there an easy answer to this? It sounds a pretty
4: ambitious question.
3: So this is the big thing. If you take all the technology, stick it all together and don't care about any of the ethics involved, it's pretty simple, really. So there's a very famous um, guy in Siberia at the moment who's found frozen woolly mammoth eggs. There's enough DNA in a woolly mammoth egg to put it into an Asian elephant egg and for the Asian elephant to have a... Pregnancy by a woolly mammoth, and therefore you've got a kind of woolly mammoth to play with.
0: Woolly mammoths return.
3: Yeah, woolly ma- the return of the woolly mammoth. He wants to produce a million of them. Sounds wicked. I welcome our new mammoth overlords. <laughs> as you should.
1: And so, dear listener, strap in as Philip Ball takes you on a whistle stop tour of how to grow a human. In discussion with his editor, Miles Archibald. They begin as ever with how Philip became interested in the idea.
2: It came about as a result of a a very different sort of project that I was involved with, which was funded by the Wellcome Trust and organised primarily by people within... UCL to do with dementia so it was a project called created out of mind that was trying to develop new tools for working with people with dementia for assessing treatments and really broadening the public discussion about what dementia is now that meant all kinds of projects were going on as a result of this and the one that I got involved with was just a very little part of that but it just opened out all this other stuff for me And it was a very striking one because there are some people in UCL, Selina Ray and Chris Lovejoy, and they are growing these mini-brains as a part of their research into Alzheimer's disease because there are some people who have a genetic predisposition to early-onset Alzheimer's. It can strike them in their 30s or 40s, whereas for most people who get it, it's much later than that. And this is because they have particular genetic mutations. And so their idea is that... If it's possible, really to sort of recapitulate the way that these people's brains grow, then perhaps you can understand what it is that goes wrong at the genetic level that leads to that. And the way they do that is to make use of this astonishing new technology that's developed really in the past 10 years, which makes it possible to take a piece of, in my case and in the usual case, it's skin. They took it from my shoulder. So these are mature cells that have just become skin cells. And the conventional thinking has been that once cells have got to that stage of becoming a particular tissue, that's it. Or they they might reproduce a few times and then they sort of stop. But they're not going to become anything else. But in the past 10 years, it's become possible to change that program to reprogram those cells back into the stem cells that we have at the very earliest stages of our growth from an embryo and so these are cells that can grow into any tissue in the body so once you have reprogrammed these skin cells into stem cells then you can grow in principle any kind of organ from them and in particular in this case you can grow neurons from them and In fact, that turns out to be surprisingly easy. It's almost like a default state of these cells if you 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 just give them a little tiny nudge and off they go and they make neurons. But they don't just make a blob of neurons. They start growing as if they know, well, really, it is that they know how to organize themselves into something like a brain, something like the beginnings of a brain that you would see in a developing fetus. So instead of just becoming a mass, you start to see some of the structures that you have in brains layers of of neurons in the cortex. And so you essentially have a a little brain in a dish that you can use to experiment on in a way that you could never do, of course, with a, a live human being. You could never do those experiments. So Selena and Chris and their colleagues are trying to do this to understand Alzheimer's better. But as part of this project created out of mind... We figured it might be an interesting thing to do to take some of the people in that project and have a mini-brain of theirs grown and see how they felt about it. So Your very was, own mini-brain. Exactly. And, I mean, how would I, you know, why would I say no to something like that? It was extraordinary. It's a little blob. It's about the size of a sort of dried pea. It certainly gets no bigger than that. In a dish, floating in nutrient, a sort of greyish-pinkish blob that
3: is like a little brain. That's, the I would say, one of the really fascinating things that's happened in this kind of stem cell is that in kind of, as you said, 10, 15, 20 years ago, stem cells were being harvested, I believe it was kind of thing from things like bone marrow. And that was thought to be the only place you could get stem cells from. But now we're in this amazing position where you kind of reverse engineer your skin cells, as you say, back to a stem cell. And obviously the fascinating thing about that is, is that not only can you make mini-brains, but you can push them in all sorts of different directions, can't you?
2: Exactly, yes. The, the kinds of stem cells that you can get from bone marrow of you know, grown adults are very limited. They can grow into a few tissue types. They can grow into blood cells, for example, but they can't do everything by any means. They can only do a few things. So they're not stem cells like those that you get in the early embryo. The other way of getting stem cells that really are all the embryonic stem cells that can grow any tissue type is actually to grow human embryos, and of course, that's done in IVF treatments. Right. And people who undertake IVF have the option of donating embryos that they can't use or don't use for research, and this is a source of stem cells for research, but that's controversial. In some countries it's permitted in the UK, in some countries it's it's forbidden. So this was a problem in some countries. And in fact this was the motivation for developing this technology for turning adult cells back into stem cells because it was done by a Japanese scientist Shinya Yamanaka who was frustrated by the fact that in Japan you're not allowed to use Okay, um, so, that's, it's not, so it's basically you're not allowed
3: stem to, cells.
2: to use embryonic stem cells. so yeah so, so you know his idea was well maybe we can, we can use adult cells and you know reprogram them and the great thing about this is that not only then do you get a supply of what some people call ethical stem cells although it's questionable whether you know ones taken from embryos are actually unethical no. Not only do you get that, but it means that for, let's say, you know, a patient who has liver failure, it becomes at least conceivable that you can take some of their skin cells and grow a mini liver rather than a mini brain that might then be implanted, surgically transplanted back into the patient and is made from their own cells, so there are no problems of
3: immune rejection. So this is one of the visions of how these cells might be used. That's the really fascinating thing, is, is, is that you, you're not just kind of taking it back onto a stage where you can produce a mini-brain, but actually you're taking it back to a stage where the possibilities of making any organ, in fact any kind of tissue type found in the human body, is there. So there's that kind of thing where you have this tiny little building blocks that have left alone can then end up producing all sorts of fascinating organs it, it? it can and and is these
2: miniature organs are called organoids so what i more strictly had grown for me was a brain organoid and people have made liver organoids kidney organoids gut organoids there's no obvious reason why you couldn't grow pretty much any tissue in the body this way and use it if you like, as a spare part to replace parts that, that wear out. Or use it as a research tool if you're trying to understand, let's say, a condition of the gut. Then maybe you can grow a gut organoid and use that as your experimental system and it's living. You know, it could be taken, again, from someone who has a particular genetic predisposition to a condition like this, and so you can see what goes wrong there. I think what struck me most of all, you know, it's, it's one thing to recognise that there are these medical implications for, you know, understanding disease and for perhaps replacing worn-out tissues. But what it's really telling you and what was it, what the real surprise was in this work is that it tells you the human body, any cell in our body, is much more plastic and versatile than we ever imagined. That it's not too much to say that as far as we can see, any part of our flesh can be turned into any other part of our flesh And that to me is an extraordinary thing, not
3: just in terms of what you might do with that,
2: but what it says about us, what it says about our identity.
3: Maybe we should kind of look a bit more at the idea of how you can take once you've got this stem cell, you can then start doing all sorts of things. Because I think there is now becoming more and more apparent that you really can produce pretty much all the organs in a body from the stem cells can't you i mean
2: well the one limitation on what you can do and this is why my brain is a this is partly reason why my brain is a mini brain and not a full size brain is that any tissue, once it gets beyond that kind of size, the size of a lentil or a pea, it needs to have a blood supply. Otherwise, cells in the interior of that mass simply don't get oxygen and they starve and they die. So if you want to grow organs bigger than these tiny little organoids, then you have to find some way of giving them a blood supply. Now, that's not impossible. In fact, people are starting to find ways of doing that. If you can give the organoid the right kind of signals to switch your genes or simply to add to it the right kind of cells that make blood vessels then they seem to have the capacity to start to organize themselves into a network of blood vessels and you know you may be able to grow an organoid with a blood supply that will be connected to the outside and you sort of feed in you know blood plasma And so research is starting to go in that direction. And if you can do that, then you may be able to grow not just a a tiny little kidney that might do the job well enough, but you'd need a lot of them in the body, but to grow a full-size kidney. And, of course, that (laughs) raises the question, well, could you do that with the brain? Could you make a full-size brain? Now, I think everyone in the field is agreed that to try to do something like that at the moment would be deeply unethical because we really have no idea what would go on in you know a brain if it got any bigger than the size of these brain organoids and we shouldn't do that experiment until we know more about it at least but in principle it's not obvious why we couldn't do that i think the other limitation and this is really crucial to the the whole idea of you know growing uh, even you know going all the way up to growing a human is that it's very clear that cells when they grow in a dish they're not growing exactly like they do in an embryo because in an embryo you've got the whole thing there that's starting to develop different tissues in different parts this bit's becoming the spinal column you know this bit's becoming the gut and they speak to each other this is absolutely crucial. It's not just that each cell is following some genetic programme of its own accord. It's absolutely crucial that they receive signals from each other so that the cells know, if you like, what they are and what they're meant to be and what shape they're meant to be. And without that, it's never going to be perfect. So this mini-brain... Was never going to be even if you could grow it bigger and give it a blood supply. It was never going to be a perfect brain because it didn't have the rest of the fetus around. All the structures it. around it. Um, so you have to find some way around that if you're going to want to grow them any bigger.
3: Can you actually take stem cells back so that you have either a sperm or an egg and then actually kind of allow it to grow on in a kind of standard? Kind of embryonic growth pattern. Have they been able to do
2: that? In a word, yes. I mean, you know, this is the other amazing thing that comes out of this capacity to grow into any tissue type. Because amongst those tissue types are the so-called gametes, the egg cells and sperm cells. They're special kinds of cells. So it's not as simple as growing. Strangely enough, it's not as simple to grow an artificial sperm this way as to grow a neuron or a mini brain, because they they have to undergo a process that other cells don't have to go. So they don't. end up with too many chromosomes when they they pair up so it's a tricky thing to do but it has been done for mice it's been shown that you can grow these artificially induced stem cells into eggs and into sperm and use those to do ivf and to grow what seem to be perfectly healthy mice
3: and do you think there will be a kind of time when people will be seeing if that kind of technology can be done in humans
2: At the moment, I see no reason, and more importantly, the specialists who are working in this area see no obvious obstacle to making that work in humans just as it has been shown to do do in mice. Of course, there are huge questions in particular about the safety of that technique and whether you could ever really be sure without doing the experiment whether you're going to get eggs and sperm that really are enough like the, the actual thing, if you like, that you're not going to find Later in life, some problems arising from someone who, has been who made like begins that. that way with with IVF. But if those questions can be answered satisfactorily, then I see no reason why it wouldn't be used in reproductive technology. But it raises all kinds of societal and ethical yeah. problems, not least because if IVF becomes that easy, then it starts to make possible ideas that at the moment really wouldn't be possible and amongst those is the question of embryo selection which already is happening. The idea here is that you create a series of embryos for IVF and you'd probably be lucky to get sort of four or five that are of sufficient quality to reimplant and have their uh, genomes read at the very early embryo stage and in the UK it's done to screen for genetic diseases. And you can screen the embryos to see if they have it and choose the ones that don't. But if you have hundreds of embryos, then it starts to, the, at least the question arises of whether you could, in a sense, end up with a menu for each embryo yes. based on their genome of what characteristics they at least may have and you know in most cases certainly for the sorts of characteristics we might want to think about things like intelligence is an obvious one athleticism should you be able to do it for hair color and eye color yeah. which would be relatively easy to do let alone questions of you know should you do it because the genetic profile suggests that possibly, and this is all it will ever do, that possibly this embryo will be more intelligent in some sense than this one. And then it becomes really difficult and really controversial. But, you know, if, if these technologies advance in the way they do, and if they are used to make IVF easier in terms of making embryos, then those questions become even more acute.
3: And then there's also kind of the questions at that stage, aren't there, when you've actually got those embryos, whether you can then start using CRISPR or something like that, i.e. actually kind of editing the genetic code within those embryos to cure, as you say, genetic defects, but of course also the kind of genetic manipulation of them so that you can actually forget about screening them for hair colour or things like that, and actually start changing the colour of their hair
2: yeah well this too is another aspect of that absolutely that genome editing becomes an issue and when I started writing this book it seemed like that certainly wasn't going to happen in the near future because if you ask pretty much anyone working in this field whether they should use this technique CRISPR which is a very sort of accurate way of editing genomes but not 100% (laughs) (laughs) accurate, whether you should use that on human embryos even to cure disease then you would get the answer, no, you shouldn't. We don't know enough about it, whether it's safe enough at the moment to to be able to use it. And so, you know, this was kind of what I was beginning to write in that regard. But towards the end of writing the book, just in November of of last year, of 2018, an announcement was made in China that someone had done this, that Chinese scientists had done this, and the community was shocked. By this, because uh, you know there was still this this consensus that it shouldn't be done. We don't know enough about it, and it seems clear that the scientist who did this was a kind of a rogue scientist. Really, he was in an academic position, but there was pretty much universal condemnation of him having done this. And all round, it was a hugely irresponsible thing to do. From the point of view of writing my book, it really you know I, I would I hesitate to say it couldn't have come at a better time because that wouldn't be right, but. But it made it added, let's say, to the relevance of that discussion.
3: And of course, that could be, and we could only say could be, I mean, that's turning into the kind of, you know, so we've gone from the theoretical to the actually practical point of that being done. So that actually now, although you don't understand, if you fiddle with one bit of it, the ramifications throughout the whole system, the actual technique is there and could be used if you wanted to. So we've kind of... And that's a that's a big step change, isn't that, it?
2: That is the problem, because the way this story came out was that announcement was made when the children who had been, if you like, grown from IVF that way, had been born. So we know that children who seem as far as we know at the moment seem to be healthy that this can be used can be done on on children so it does raise that concern that that sort of bridge has now been crossed and the temptation is there but you know it's interesting to compare it with what happened in the early days of IVF where again many people had concerns about the safety of the procedure and yet they went
3: ahead so it was the, yeah, the, quite quite quickly licensed because that
2: Robert Edwards and, and Patrick yes. Steptoe did the experiment because there was nothing to stop them legally And once everyone saw that this baby had been born through IVF and she seemed perfectly healthy, and she has been perfectly healthy, the floodgates were opened. Now, it would be, in some ways, it would be fantastic if the CRISPR, as they're now often referred to the CRISPR babies, turned out the same way that they turned out to be perfectly healthy throughout their lives – for them that would be fantastic but I don't, I I wouldn't want to draw a a complete equivalence you know, in saying that well someone had to go ahead and do this anyway so that we could get it done because I think there was much more irresponsibility and many many more questions, valid questions to be raised about the use of CRISPR than what Edwards and Steptoe did in 1977
3: and of course it was done on a kind of much I mean we were kind of a cellular level then, I mean the CRISPR thing of course we're now looking at that kind of molecular level and genome editing and it's amazing to think that how long is that that's only kind of like in 30 years or 40 years that we've actually come from that kind of gross manipulation down to the proper fine tuning and as you say the kind of crisper editing
2: one of the things that I I wanted to bring out in my book was that IVF has a central role in all of this discussion. And I just find it very interesting that that's, you know, it's an illustration in a way of how a very particular goal in science and technology some might say open up a whole Pandora's box. It could certainly lead in areas that no one anticipated, because IVF was meant to be a you know fertility treatment for people with very particular problems. The, the, the first woman who gave birth this way had a, a blockage of fallopian tubes, which made it impossible for her to conceive in any other way. And, you know, that was the idea. But as soon as IVF began, there were all these embryos that weren't going to be implanted and what does one do with them and then people started to think well this is what we need in order to do research to understand more about human development and conception and so the whole area of embryo research opened up and because as I said because those embryos were available you could get stem cells from them so the whole area of stem cell research opened up and we're now seeing other modifications made to embryos the whole question of what has quite misleadingly been sometimes called three-parent babies it's really a technique that is correcting some genetic diseases that arise in parts of the cell called mitochondria. This is a, a, an area of fundamental research that's about treating disease, but again, it's one that is completely enabled by the fact that we have IVF. In a sense, organoids—you could see them that way too—that in some ways they started from culturing tissue outside the body, from, for let's say, making skin for skin grafts. It's you know very straightforward and very tricky, but with specific application. And now we 're looking at having to think about what 's going on inside a mini brain, and at what point might consciousness arise in that mini brain, or even among the organoids that can be grown are bodies called embryoids, which are basically embryo versions of organoids they 're just uh, they 're sort of If you like, artificial embryos. But we really have to be careful about that word because they're just living cells, normal cells, but that have been assembled from the particular cellular components into the tissues that a whole embryo needs. And they start to grow looking rather like a normal embryo. But they have not been created by egg and sperm, have never met to create this embryo.
3: This is when we get into the kind of fascination Of course, you know, the question I think that quite a lot of people then start to think about, well, is is there going to be a moment when you will be able to actually clone kind of either me or you, Phil, in a kind of direct way? So there's no kind of egg and sperm, it's just our genetic material and off it goes and we end up with something that kind of certainly might look like us.
2: Well, cloning, that's another area that arose from all of this research. And what happens there, again, is that you essentially create an embryo without egg meeting sperm, because what you do is the standard technique, and the one that was used to make Dolly the sheep in the mid-1990s, was to take the genes, really, from an adult cell, so you would again, if you were doing it with a human, you would take a bit of you know, my arm, as you did, and take out the genes from, from that cell and put them into an egg cell, a human egg cell, from which its own genes have been removed. And simply putting those new genes into the cell seems also to have this peculiar property of revitalizing all the genes that had been turned off in my skin cells so that they become, again, able to generate any tissue in the body. And so then you implant this egg and it develops into an embryo. So that's how Dolly the Sheep was made. And it hasn't been done on humans, despite some claims to the contrary, uh, it hasn't been done. But not only are there no obvious reasons why it wouldn't work, but we do know now, because of very recent work in China, that this sort of cloning will work for some of our very close primate relatives, for macaque monkeys. However, we also know through that work that it's, very, it's a very hazardous process that out of many attempts that the Chinese team made to clone the monkeys, only a very, very few worked and there were miscarriages and there were you know, some anomalies and so on. So at the moment, you absolutely wouldn't use it as a reproductive human reproductive technology. Yeah, too it's too dangerous. And it's banned in, in most countries. But you could say, well, these are practical problems that need to be solved. You know I suspect that the day will come when we can be fairly sure that cloning a human being without massive dangers of you know abnormalities or defects in later life that this will be possible and we will be faced with the decision of whether or not to do this and I think there is no obvious answer one should leap to about whether or not that is right uh, you know whether or not this should be done except to say that it's not clear to me why there are any important drivers of you know, why we would want to do this. All the things that you might, medically, that you might want to achieve through cloning, you can achieve in other ways. And the worry is that it won't be done for those reasons, but it will be done for pure vanity. It will be yes. you know, someone with the wealth going to a country where it's unregulated and having themselves cloned you know, purely as a vanity project.
3: And I suppose the fascinating thing about that, and maybe to kind of go back to the the mini-brains, is that actually if you do clone something, you kind of begin to get this sense that in some way we probably will be able to end up with a human that kind of looks like the person that they've cloned. And I suppose the big question then is, is it the same person? Is the huge complexity of the brain something that's delivered genetically so that you would have it exactly the same? Or is any animal's brain so complex that actually it just develops kind of randomly so you never get a Phil Ball or a Miles Archibald? You always get something that might look very similar to us but isn't us. It's a bit of both. And that
2: is one of the messages that I wanted to to get across in this book, that once you really look at how human development happens within the embryo, you understand that not only is it hugely complex but there's a huge amount of contingency involved in that and I really want to to try to get us to move away from this idea that's increasingly actually being sort of forced upon us, particularly by gene sequencing companies, that somehow your genome is you and that once you have, once that embryo has a particular genome, the rest is preordained. It simply is not true. But some is. I mean, you know, that if you have some genetic defects, then you will definitely get a disease. If you have this mutation that might give you uh, early onset Alzheimer's, then you can be sure sadly that you will get it but there's a lot else that you can't be sure about at all so there is for example it seems clear that there's a strong inherited component of intelligence that about 50 percent of it seems to be down to what is in our genes roughly speaking But then 50% isn't. So if we cloned a Mars Archibald, then it may... Could go either way. It could go (laughs) either way. You could end up, you know, at either end of of a bell curve of intelligences. Just looking at the genome, the the genetics alone tells you that. But actually, the way the brain wires up, there are billions and billions of connections, of neural connections in the brain, far too many to be all somehow programmed into the DNA. That is simply not how it happens. There's a huge amount amount of chance and contingency in the way the brain wires up as well as feedback from the environment that you need that both in the womb and in early um, infancy in order for the brain to wire up it's still wiring up way after you're born so you need the inputs or it simply won't develop that way so it's absolutely untrue that somehow our genetics has fixed what our brain
3: and our personality is going to be like but it does influence it and then i suppose the fascinating thing is is and it's much talked about at the moment is this idea of actually then being able to take a brain and kind of download it transfer it so that you end up with a kind of artificial brain one that has the, exactly the same complexity and we can talk about that in a minute but and you can download yourself into a computer and that seems to me to be nigh on impossible well, there are people
2: who make the argument that it's just a matter of numbers. There are only so many neurons that you have in your brain. There are only so many connections, and there are lots and lots of them.
3: There are a lot. But, you know,
2: <laughs> the computers increasingly have lots and lots of transistors in them and components in them. And so if you have enough components in the computer, why shouldn't you be able to make a perfect replica of that? There are several reasons why it seems to me that that's a fantasy. And among them is that this notion that somehow how, what is going on in your brain, you can take a snapshot of that, you know, as though you've frozen your brain and then you just somehow copy that, whatever that means. You just sort of copy that into silicon circuitry. But that's not what, cognition is doing it's it's a dynamic thing it's not a like a physical object that can just be you know reproduced like a in a 3d printer so you know that's what that's one problem but increasingly people who think about Cognition and intelligence recognize that it's not just a question of figuring out sort of bits and bytes and you know how the information is flowing around, that we are embodied, our cognition is embodied, it relies on our body and on our sense of being a body in the world. Without that embodiment, it's not even clear what an intelligence means or what kind of conception about the world you can have. So, you know, this this idea that somehow all of our cognition, all of our intelligence and our experience is an abstract thing that might as well be encoded in silicon circuits as it is in the jelly in our brain, I think that seems
3: increasingly to be a fallacy. And that idea of consciousness being kind of the ultimate multifactorial representation of that, the moment when actually something becomes conscious because you went back and visited your mini brains occasionally I won't say often but was there a moment when you looked at them and thought I just wonder if they're wondering there wasn't
2: exactly that I was surprised that I felt a little bit not exactly protective, but as though connected, let's say, to them. And that's something I hadn't anticipated. I didn't feel I had a duty of care towards them. I felt fairly sure that there wasn't anything in something this size with so few neurons that really could be thought of as cognition or experience. But it seems clear that that question is going to arise if we're going to make these brains any bigger or more complex, and that we don't have a framework for thinking about it at the moment because we don't know what consciousness is we don't have a model of it and I was certainly given pause when during the, the writing of this book I spoke to neuroscientist Christoph Koch who's very interested in consciousness and he has an idea about consciousness that is one of many models that people talk about at the moment but he feels that it's a property of certain kinds of networks and that it's a question of degree and that in some sense any system that has the right kind of network and the right kind of signalling between the components of that network can exhibit a degree of consciousness. And you know, he certainly thinks, and I think it seems a reasonable thing to suppose that animals, and, you know, dogs, even fish, have a degree of consciousness. But it goes even beyond that, even to even even simpler systems. And, you know, he was saying, so these many brains will be like that. They're kind of wired up like our own brains. They will have a small component of this thing we call consciousness. Yes. And it's, you know, probably not something that we need to worry about ethically at, at this point, but we should be thinking about it at this point. And he said, you know, we aren't far from having reached the point where we have to think, what is going on in there? It did make me think, oh, well, maybe, you know, I wonder whether I've been a bit too <laughs> blasé about this mini brain just in terms of thinking, well, you know, how, how to think about the processing that it's doing. You know, I think it probably, it has no real inputs. The the neurons in these mini-brains, we know that they are signaling to each other, they're firing to each other, like ours do in our own brains, but there's no reason to think that there's any real, you know, information content in that. But you can absolutely imagine how that might develop at some point, and, you know, we, what we need, really, are measures, of consciousness, and this is one thing that Christoph is trying to do, amongst others, to g- develop measures of consciousness so that we really can say something about, you know, where the limits are and where the ethical yeah. limits are in this work. Christoph also said, you know, we we have to think: does it feel pain? Not because we should fear that it does. But because that is a question we we already need to start thinking about, and even you know some people working in this area, including bioethicists, have said that might there be a point where we do have actually a duty of care to a mini brain in the sense of having to appoint almost appoint a guardian for it in the same way as guardians are appointed for children taken into care to look after its interests and to advocate for it that you know we may come to this point. So the fact that it's possible to make these things absolutely opens up those sorts of ethical questions for which at the moment we just don't have even frameworks for thinking
3: about. And I think the fascinating thing on the kind of end note is to think just how far we have come since kind of 1977 and Short and Edwards, I think it was, and all those things that have come out of it, resulting in the technology that you had to take your skin cells back to a little mini-brain and what now, all that opens up, ethics, biology, all these kind of things that are now going on. I think that that's going to be the most exciting thing about the next 50 years is dealing with actually what we've discovered. It was very striking to me that even
2: after the, the human genome had been sequenced and there was the big hoo-ha about that, even after that there was something so fundamental that we didn't know about human cells, that they could have this plasticity, this versatility. They could be reprogrammed to this degree. They could be taken back to this stem cell say, stage. That was a surprise. And so it seems inconceivable that there aren't going to be more surprises like that in biology biology further down the line and I think one of the things that really motivated me to write this book having gone through this experience was that it forced me to think not just about you know what are the ethical implications of this and what the technologies might lead to although those are fascinating in themselves but really it raises questions about individuality and identity and self because I couldn't get away from the idea that a piece of me in some sense is over in those freezers across town and it's it's a piece of me not just in, in the sense of uh you know nail clipping or something because it's alive or potentially alive it's in suspended animation at the moment but there's no obvious reason why it couldn't be grown into anything including another human being which wouldn't be me i feel very clear about that that the me it seems to me is not something that's implanted, not something that's pre-existing in the embryo. It's something we need to think of it as something that grows as the embryo grows, that that humanness, that identity, it has a history. It's not a static thing. So it wouldn't be me... But, you know, at the moment, it's a piece of me. And what does that mean? How do I think about that? You know, how do I think about identity? And it it really fascinated me that once I started to ask that question, I found that actually biologists don't know how to think about it. They have no theory of the individual organism. It's very hard to find a definition of that. So, you know, it blows apart, in some ways, some of the preconceptions we have about what an organism is and what a human is. And
3: there's something rather nice about just ending. It's rather nice to think that actually, when it comes down to it, all kind of animals, including human beings, are unique. And if you really want to see what Phil's organs looks like, there's some very beautiful end papers in the book. Phil Bull, thank you so much. That has been a fascinating tour of, I think, probably one of the most exciting parts of kind of biology and medicine that's currently going on today. Thank you, Miles. Thank, thank you. you. That was
1: Philip Ball in conversation with editor Miles Archibald. Our programme today was brought to you by William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers and was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. People who helped put this episode together are Anouska Tate, Tara Al-Azawi and Jack Chalmers. Share your thoughts on this podcast by emailing ideasmatter at harpercollins.co.uk or on social at WM Collins Books. You can buy How to Grow a Human Adventures in Who We Are and How We Are Made by Philip Ball as a hardback audiobook or ebook, where Philip dives even deeper into the ideas discussed this week. Thank you for listening, and keep an eye out for the first chapter from the audiobook of How to Grow a Human, which will appear in this feed this Friday. And come back next week when we will be discussing how to be less afraid of death with Catherine Mannix.
4: In palliative care, most hospices start Christmas around about October, and there may be a series of Christmases between October and December, and some patients actually then defy the odds and get Christmas twice, but that's probably (laughs) better than missing it altogether.
1: (laughs) To hear that episode first, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on Acast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.